Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 24 of the Essential X-Lapse, where I'm kind of sitting here in shock a little bit. Um, when I started these Essential episodes here, I was worried that these episodes would be very short, right? There wouldn't be a whole heck of a lot to talk about because, I mean, it's a Silver Age story. What really is there to talk about? Then we added the letters pages, then we added the bullpen, then we added the Merry Marvel Marching Society and the Mighty Marvel Checklist, and, uh, well, I'm looking at my script, and it's, uh, it's over 20 pages, which, I mean, that's almost cosmic treadmill levels of, uh, of length there, so I suppose I should probably stop yapping and, uh, get on into it. So, uh, let's do it. This is X-Men number 17, February 1966, cover date. Stories called And None Shall Survive, written and edited by Stan Lee, layouts Jack Kirby, pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin, inks Dick Ayers, letters Artie Simic, colors, um, well, uh, if you look at the cover here, it's probably a very big fan of the color red, and if you open the book up, it's someone who is a really big fan of the colors green and blue, so, uh, that might triangulate who our, uh, phantom colorist is, and it has a cover price of 12 cents. Now, as mentioned, this one's got a cover that'll stand out to you. It is blaringly red. I mean, it, it might make your head hurt. And on it, uh, Stan actually channels his inner Hitchcock, uh, warning us not to share the final panel with anyone. Because uh, Marvel will be watching, and they know. They'll know if you did. So I wonder, what could that final panel be revealing? Well, of course, we will get there. Now, our story opens similarly to how the Juggernaut two-parter ended, in a, in a way. Uh, we have the X-Men injured and being tended to. Not by Nurse Jean, however, but by literal green army men and blue police officers. Like, the only colors they are are blue and green. Turns out that Xavier lifted his mental control over the officers from last issue. Now, if you remember, he blocked out their ability to see the X-Men breaking out of the Sentinel's underground fortress before it went boom to try to, uh, I guess maybe disguise the fact that he's working with them or just keep them safe or just out of view. He's changed his mind. He wants the X-Men to get credit for uh, taking down the Sentinel, so bada-bing, bada-boom. So, let's get a better look at our injuries here. Scott has some scrapes. Now, the barefoot beast's bare foot might be broken. Hank warns the medic that each of his toes is priceless. And, well, I'm not so sure about that. I, I bet that Bernard the Poet could probably affix a value to each of those toes. Angel and Jean are enjoying cups of coffee, and Iceman is just kind of out of it. Now, a general thanks Professor X for his bravery in escorting his troops and the officers out there to stop the Sentinels. So, once again, Xavier gets all the credit. Um... Anyway, uh, Chuck replies all casually as not to tip anyone off that he's with the X-Men. Uh, you know, despite the fact that they're always seen together, like always, uh, Xavier starts with the letter X. He was just on TV advocating for them. The X-Helicopter takes off and lands in his backyard. And of course, Iceman and Cyclops were dropped off at his house by that ice cream man way back in issue number two. Anyway, the General says that from now on, they'll only view the X-Men as heroes. Yeah, right. He then orders a captain to order his men to search the ruins of the Sentinel base. A medic approaches Professor Xavier, for whatever reason, in order to advise that Beast, Cyclops, and Iceman were injured enough during the ordeal that they're going to have to be brought in for treatment. 
Xavier asks if it would be okay if Angel and Jean drove him back home, which, I mean, that's a natural request for a complete stranger to make, right? The medic, unsurprisingly, does not give a rat's ass one way or another. He's like, yeah, go, go wherever you want. I don't, what, what do I care? We jump over to Stanley Time Progression Land, which is seconds later, where the hurt fellas are being whisked away to a local medical facility. Xavier makes sure to tell them all not to reveal their civilian identities, and this will come back around. Meanwhile, the army is exploring the ruins of Traskland. What'll they find? Well, since we're not going to see them again, we might assume Bupkis. We jump ahead a short time later to the Hushed Hospital. Now, Iceman has slipped into critical condition, having slipped out of consciousness during the ambulance ride in. Oh, and Professor X is here too. I I thought he was going home. I guess not. Now, the doctor proclaims that due to Iceman's mutant nature, he hasn't the foggiest idea what might be going on with him. Bobby manages to wriggle around a bit and mumble some stuff about being the youngest X-Man, because, uh, well, that is his, uh, that is his character trait. The doctor believes the boy has become delirious and tells Xavier that he better get out of here so he can, you know, take a closer look. Now, Charles worries that Iceman might be the first X-Man to perish. Well... Actually, he worries more about how that would make him a failure rather than Iceman's actual mortality. The prof continues his whirlwind hospital tour, and his next stop is the Beast's Room. Now, Charles immediately reminds Hank, the smartest of the X-Men, not to remove his mask. Which, I mean, no duh, really? Now, all Beast wants to know is how Bobby's doing, which tells us that he cares more than Xavier does. Uh, the doc tells him that he's critically delirious. He then turns to Xavier to advise how much easier this would be if the big boy would unmask. And, uh, well, a couple of things here. First of all, why would that make a foot exam easier? Because, I mean, all that's wrong with Hank is that his feet were hurting. And second, why would he ask Xavier for this since Xavier and the X-Men have no association? I don't know. Well, here's the rub. The doc just wants to know who this kid is so that he might find out who the kid's parents are. The way he figures, this might help humanity learn so much more about mutation. And, uh, he he might not be wrong there. And this will come around a little bit more next issue. Now, this makes Xavier think about the weak link in the chain of their security, which is the parents of the X-Men. He wonders what could happen if the X-Men's identities ever did get out, and if any evil mutants might use that information to their advantage. And I feel like now I should take a second out to ask you all if you're uh, managing to dodge them anvils all right. Because they're falling at a uh, rapid clip here. Now meanwhile, out at the nurse's station, uh, the angel, who I thought went home, is using the nurse's phone to check in on the mansion's messages. So, uh... Wow, I guess this was a thing back in the mid-70s? Or is this further evidence of Xavier's advanced technology, you know, calling in for your messages? Now, he is hovering close to the ceiling to ensure none of the nurses could see the number that he dialed. Now, it turns out that there is a message waiting for the X-Men from Warren's own parents, the very supportive Long Island Worthingtons who we met a few issues back. Now, he mentally advises the prof that his folks are worried that they haven't heard back from him since he ran out on their dinner back uh, in issue 14 or so. And so, they're going to swing by the school for a visit. Uh Uh-oh. So, Xavier demands he be handed the phone to try to dissuade them from coming. Because, first of all, they're going to find the place empty. Second, he just can't shake the feeling of of a sort of danger coming from the school right now. Huh, some bad mojo coming from the school. I wonder what that could be. 
So Chuck calls the Worthingtons to let him know that his students, you know, the graduates, uh, were off on a field trip gathering materials for a research paper. And I mean, you know, a lot of uh, graduates who aren't involved in any post-grad studies do that, right? You know, they write papers for their old professors. Okay. In any event, the Worthingtons will not be denied. They're coming to visit whether Xavier wants them to or not. And I gotta ask, I wonder what these nurses thought as they watched Xavier make a phone call on behalf of this winged mutant boy he has no association with. Anyway, Charles sends Warren back to the school to do some scouting around the area. And remember, he's got a bad feeling about the school right now, so, um, I mean, this might not be the wisest idea, but what are you gonna do? And so Warren skidoos, even getting uh, what might be the first ever full-page spread out of any of the X-Men which really shows off how Werner Roth might still be a step or two behind King Kirby here. This is not a pleasant page. Now, as Angel approaches the mansion, we see a creepy purple-gloved figure has already beaten him there. Huh. Okay, so Warren lands and enters, only to be attacked by an axe. Now, you see, the professor, of course, is a rich guy. And all rich guys have suits of armor stood in their front hallways, right? I mean, that's just common sense. Now, this axe has been yoinked out of the armor's mitt and is sent right for our winged wonder as if by magnetic... Never mind. Um, Thankfully for Warren, you know, it's not a net coming at him, and so he's able to deftly dodge it before he could smash him to bits. He then darts down the hallway and does what so many birds do every day in my backyard. He flies smack into a pane of glass that had been strategically placed in his way. A bucket-headed shadow celebrates this and proclaims that this will be the first of many victories. Back at the hospital, Xavier checks in on Cyclops. Now, he's being looked over by a mustachioed doctor who insists he get a good look at the boy's eyes. Now, Scott, as you might imagine, is hesitant to, you know, blast this doctor's head clean off his shoulders, but the doctor won't give up. Xavier enters and mentally tells Scott to demonstrate how dread his cursed powers truly are. And so Cyclops blasts the little reflex hammer out of the doctor's hands, and now, and only now, the doctor finally understands. Was this really necessary? I mean, Cyclops' powers should be pretty well known by now, right? Oh well. Xavier asks if it'd be okay if Cyclops took him for a walk, which is a weird request to make of a total stranger. I mean, I don't even know why they're still doing this charade here. Couldn't Xavier just mind-wipe everybody? I mean, he's done it before, he'll do it again, so why not? The doctor doesn't care a whit, as he shouldn't, and so they head out to the hospital grounds real casual-like. Once under a shady tree, Chuck tells Scott what's going on, that he sent Angel back to the school, but that he's lost contact with him since. And still, he can't shake the feeling of dread about the place. And so the two of them are going to have to head back home. And we jump ahead exactly one hour. So Scott and Charles, they arrive back at the school driving at a breakneck speed, and it takes them one hour, so remember that. Once inside, Cyclops calls out for Warren, and he uh, refers to himself as Psyche. He's like, Warren, it's Psyche, or Angel, it's Psyche, which doesn't feel natural for him to be that casual. Then Cerebro starts screeching like an mf here. Uh, Professor X recognizes this particular screech, claiming that the machine only reacts in such a way when a most dangerous mutant threatens them. Now, as Xavier tinkers with the box, he's overcome by a bunch of random metal wires and hoses. And it's actually a mechanical mental wave distorter, 
which Xavier is able to tell us all about as he gets entangled. Though once he is fully entangled, uh, he loses the ability to think at all. To make matters worse, a pane of glass lowers from the ceiling, separating Xavier's desk from the rest of the room. I mean, what room is this? Is this the danger room? I mean, what, what's going on here? A Cyclops blasts the glass, but it only reflects his beam right back at him, and then the lights go out. Cyclops spends an entire page fighting against a purple-gloved figure in the dark, before finally being KO'd with a crack to the skull. Back to the hospital. Beast is literally bouncing all over the place, so I guess his tootsies will be fine, and uh, the folks at the Coffee Gogo will be most pleased. Gene enters the room to lambast him for both his antics and his usage of hundred-dollar words. Because, you see, she's just a g-g-g-g-g-girl, so how is she supposed to keep up with such a big brain? Anyway, Gene is worried about Cyclops and the Professor and suggests that they head back to the school to check in on them. On the way out, however, they will check on Iceman, who is still unconscious. The doctor tells him that uh, he won't bother them anymore for their secret identities, but suggests that if they know who Iceman really is, maybe they ought to reach out and contact his parents because things are not looking great. Hank and Gene will take that under advisement, and then they jump out of a third-story window. So, it took Scott and Charles an hour to get home at breakneck speed, right? But Gene and Hank, they're just going to run there. So I suppose we can assume that this is like four or five hours later, right? That they arrive. Anyway, they get home. And once inside, they find that the floor has been replaced with frictionless glass, prompting them both to slip, slide, and slam all over the hallway. Jean manages to TK herself to a stop, but the beast falls down an elevator shaft, I think? I don't know. Anyway, Jean turns to the reader and to the interloper and instantly recognizes him. She lashes out with some TK hoodoo before passing out. You see, the room had been filled with sleeping gas, which I suppose only affects females because our mystery baddie doesn't seem all that bothered by it. The bucket-headed shadow then declares total victory, citing that the era of the X-Men is finally over. Back to the hospital, Iceman has reached a moment of crisis. The doctor is approached by a pair of news reporters trying to find out who this Iceman really is. The doc tells them both to pound sand as he heads back into the youngster's room. After the nurse explains the dire situation, the doctor concludes that their only course of action now is to use a risky new medication, a sulfa drug. Back to the mansion, the four other X-Men and Professor X are loaded into a steel gondola that is attached to a hot air balloon. Now our Betty locks them inside, with the gimmick being once the balloon hits 100,000 feet in the air, they'll all drop to their death. I mean, why not just kill them now and be done with it? I mean, they're out, they're out cold. Kill them. Just, just kill them. Well, it seems that this baddie is a little bit more theatric than this. Anyway, as the balloon rises, the Worthingtons arrive at the school. They ring the bell, and it's answered by, well, someone who introduces themselves as Power, as in I am Power. Huh. Any guesses? Uh, Well, of course, after six entire issues, Magneto is back. And this reveal gets a full-page spread, and it's pretty ugly. Uh, Next episode, the milestone 25th episode of The Essential X Lapsed, maybe we'll find out how Mags managed to escape the stranger. But for now, how about we talk about this issue here? Um, Now, there's that phrase that so many of us fake-ass analysts like to rely on over and over again, uh, suspension of disbelief. And uh, we've talked about this before, how it's kind of on a wavelength, right? 
there are certain things that are just so fantastical that we can't help but to just accept it. You know, somebody can fly. You know, uh, angels got wings. Cyclops can blast things with his eyes. That stuff is so outlandish that it just... It makes logical sense in the context of the fantastical Marvel Universe, right? It's just something that is. We accept it. We accept that gods walk on the earth there. We, we accept those kind of things because they're so far gone from what we would accept as real in real life that it's just normal where, where within the context. But like I said, it's on a wave, right? So when you get to the more mundane things, it's harder and harder for us to suspend that disbelief anymore. What I'm referring to is the fact that Professor X is always with the X-Men. And nobody is putting two and two together that they might have some sort of an association. Like, there is no reason for Professor X to be at the hospital visiting in on these kids here over and over and over again. There's no reason why he should be asking for rides home from these complete strangers. It's, it's just, it just takes me out of the story. And, of course, I mean, we're not supposed to be thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and we could lampshade it by saying that Professor X is doing something with his uh, mental abilities to shield or to mind wipe or whatever, but... It's like anybody with half a brain who is seeing this should be like, why is this creepy bald guy still hanging around with these kids? And, and oh wait, his last name starts with an X, and uh, wait a minute, that helicopter keeps taking off out of his backyard. It's, it feels like it would stand to reason that uh, people should be figuring this stuff out. And sticking with the professor, I mean, he is just an awful character, isn't he? I mean, he really just sucks. He takes all the credit for basically everything. And the way he talks down to the students is just ridiculous. Like, hey, stupid, keep your mask on. It's like, you're, you're talking to Beast. He's, he's, he's a smart dude. He's not going to take his mask off in front of a bunch of uh, doctors. And I mean, even if he did, you just mind wipe them, right? So it's, I don't know, the professor is just not coming off um, all that great here. And it's kind of weird because I came into the X-Men fandom like in like a lull between distrusting of Professor Xavier. Like, I came in early 90s where he was kind of this fatherly figure. He would be a voice of reason. People would come to him with their problems. He just seemed like someone that uh, really couldn't do much wrong. And I wouldn't think I wouldn't think him nefarious or sinister in any sort of way. Then, of course, you know, Onslaught happens. And uh, we, we foment a lot of distrust in Xavier, even to this very day where... We very seldom see him, you know, we, I don't think we've seen his face more than twice since Hoxpox hit. He's always wearing that helmet. But to go back to the Silver Age here, and it's like he's still kind of a jerk. <laughs> I mean, just a real glory hog. Huh? Gotta get all his stuff in. Gotta make sure he's front and center in and, and just about every X-Men escapade. It's a... Uh, Without wanting anybody to know that he's actually a part of them It's very, very bizarre And definitely my main takeaway for this issue here Just, it's so hard to reconcile that uh, That this character is just there, lingering I mean, if you were ever a witness to a crime or to an accident And uh, after giving your statement to the police or to whoever You just don't leave I mean, would, would they look at you funny being like You, you can go home now Hey, I mean, the, the accident was, was many hours ago. Uh, you said everything you're going to say. You can leave now. Uh, I mean, if you don't leave, we're going to start thinking that you might have had something to do with it. So maybe leave. It's a... I don't know. Maybe I'm definitely thinking way too hard about it. Uh, now, speaking of thinking of things too hard and how we will not 
think about things too hard. Uh, Magneto's back. He's back after five or six issues away, uh, whisked to uh, wherever the hell the stranger brought him to. Uh, we will find out next issue how Magneto managed to escape and uh, come back to Earth, and uh, we might find out just how long he will be remaining on Earth. But uh, that'll be a discussion for next time. Let's uh, let's talk art for a little bit. Um, got some ugly faces here. <laughs> some real ugly faces here. Uh, the big pinup pages. We have two pinup pages in this book here. One with uh, Warren flying home, and the other with Magneto revealing himself to the Worthingtons. And boy, um, yeah, these close-ups ain't great. Uh, the faces are just really, really ugly, contorted. It's just a. Uh, not pleasant to look at, and I mean, I'm on record as not being the hugest Kirby fan out there. I, I, you know, like I've said, hot and cold on Kirby, can take or leave his stuff with with a full respect and appreciation for exactly what he did in building the Marvel Universe, right? But not my favorite stuff. And here we have uh, Werner Roth, and it's like, uh, let's let's get some Kirby faces in there. And I mean, from Kirby's time at DC, we know that not everybody loved his faces. I mean, most notably, uh, Kurt Swan would uh, redraw Superman's face over Kirby uh, art. So uh, it's weird that I'm asking for Kirby faces here instead of uh, Werner Roth because, woof, not great. Um, I feel like overall, uh, maybe Stan's overworked. I don't think that this is his best effort. I think uh, he's got a lot of irons in the fire right now, so it's hard to hold it against him, but... um, well, we'll see. Not too long from now, uh, Stan will be replaced on scripts, so uh, hopefully we'll see a vast, or at least a little bit of an improvement once uh, once we get to issue 20. So should you read this issue? Well, uh, I guess if you're a you know, huge Magneto fan or a Magneto completionist, uh, sure, <laughs> go ahead. Um, just don't expect a whole heck of a lot, because uh, you won't be getting a whole heck of a lot. But uh, that is all I have to say about this issue. Suppose we ought to hop into the letters pages here. We do have a bunch of letters to get to. Let's start with Gary in Kansas. He loved issue number 14. He suggests that every time Cyclops uses his optic blast, he should be blown off the planet due to physics. Which, come on. Uh, how, <laughs> we talk about this a lot. The uh, Our letter hacks... Um, they like to show themselves as being the smartest people in the room, and uh, they love to uh, bring in real-life science and try to uh, reconcile it with fantastical comic book storytelling, which, could we stop? <laughs> Please? Can we just accept this for what it is? I mean, and I, and I bet you, uh, Gary in Kansas, what is he going to think when he reads this issue and sees Professor X always with the X-Men and still nobody putting two and two together that he might be one of them? I mean... I don't know. Maybe the pendulum has swung too far. Now, Gary is also quite pleased that the X-Men have gone monthly, and he hopes that Stan doesn't crack under the pressure, to which Stan suggests that he cracked long ago. And, uh, well, with these last few issues, um, yeah, Stan, Stan's tired. <laughs> Stan's a little tired. It's still fun stuff, of course, but uh, yeah, he's, a, he's tired. Um, next, Doug in Indiana. Now, he learned that there was a famous missionary in China and Japan named Francis Xavier, and he was wondering if this is where Stan got the name for Professor X. Now, Stan fesses up, and he says that they wanted to call him Professor X, and then they had to figure out what the X stood for, and Xavier was the first name they could think of. Now, it's worth noting it'll eventually be revealed that Francis is Charles's middle name, so I guess maybe everything comes back around full circle. 
By the way, Francis Xavier, born Francisco de Jasso y Aspilqueta, he was alive from April 7th, 1506 to December 3rd, 1552. He was venerated as St. Francis Xavier by Gregory the 15th on March 12th, 1622, and he is the patron saint of Catholic missions. Now, he was a Navarrese Catholic missionary and the co-founder of the Society of Jesus. So, the more you know. Next up, Leonard New York. He considers X-Men 14 to be a master working of a masterpiece. He thought he would miss King Kirby on pencils, but he's pleased with Jay Gavin and Vince Coletta's work. Now, he wants to know where the rest of the New Mutants are, because we haven't seen any newbies in a while. Now, Stan says he's not sure where the new ones are, but asks if he liked the old one that came popping out of the woodwork in this very issue. So, uh, Leonard, balls in your court. We want to know. Robert in California. He was happy that, for an entire issue, the X-Men's costumes remained one color. Uh, He was unhappy that that color was blue instead of black. He liked the black on uh, yellow instead of the blue on yellow. He then asked for the X-Men's ages. And Stan, he answers uh, by saying he doesn't want to give exact ages because he's afraid he'll forget and wind up riling up the geeks in a later issue. So he generalizes. Cyclops is the oldest, but he's still a teen. The others are a few months older, except Iceman, who is about a year and a half younger. So anywhere you want to put him, I guess you're good to do so. Gordon in Washington. Now, he would like to see some in-character letters pages. Like, have fans write into a Marvel character and have them reply as that character. But he only wants serious questions. Serious questions, like, you know, if you want to ask the Beast how he got such big feet, or if you want to ask if the angel's wings feel the same as a bird's wings. Really, dude? (laughs) Okay. Now, he also feels like Marvel Comics used to be better, but now they feel like they just want money, suggesting that Stan write the ship or ship on out. Now, Stan suggests that Gordon probably works for brand Ech Comics. He then mocks him for his idea of serious questions, and rightfully so. And Stan cops to the concept that, uh, well, hell yeah, they want money. <laughs> I mean, and from here he pops into perfect Stan Lee shill mode, and he suggests that if Gordon likes the older stuff better, well, maybe he put his money where his mouth is and pick up fantasy masterpieces and Marvel's collector's item classics, which are reprinting some of that old stuff right this very minute. Next up, Brant in New Mexico. He liked the covered X-Men number 14. And he doesn't mind continuing stories now because the X-Men is a monthly mag. And he suggests giving Scott a war cry of, Beam on! What is it with these goofs and their war cries? I mean, at least Beam on is a little less perverse than Flap on or Flaps up or whatever it was for Warren. Um, Now Stan mocks the suggestion and he he adds a few of his own to kind of rub salt in it. He says, why stop with Cyclops? Professor X can have a war cry of, think on. Iceman can say, freeze on. And Hulk can say, green skin on. And so on, and so on, and so on. Jim in Massachusetts. Now, he takes issue with another letter hack from issue number 13. Now, this is the one who said the X-Men over-rely on Professor X and also had a problem with the harm-no-human-Cohen law. I, I mean, ethical code. Uh, Jim says that this letter hack sounds like a fanatical sadist who won't be satisfied until he sees blood. Wow, so we have uh, we had message board flame wars even back in 1966. Go figure. Jim also claims to enjoy Stan's boisterous bragging about how great Marvel comics are. 
and he can't wait to see how the X-Men defeat the Sentinels. Now, Stan replies by uh, claiming not to remember if the X-Men actually did defeat the Sentinels or not, because he's a, he's a very busy man, you see. Uh, Sal in Jersey, and uh-oh, Sal's got himself a hot take. He suggests that they title all futures, future issues of X-Men as, quote, the decline and fall of the artist's empire, because the art sucks, you see. Uh, Jay Gavin and Vince Coletta blow chunks. He says the Hulk could draw a better book using only a slap of fence, but the story was okay. And uh, Stan warns that Vince might make Sal sleep with the fishes for a statement like that. Uh, well, no, he just threatens that Vince might quit. But personally, I hope that, uh, that Sal didn't send in his full address. You know, just, just in case, just to be safe. Uh, we got Nabil in Jordan. He says Stan Lee's the best. He's such a nice man that he personally responded to a letter he'd written to him a few years back. He thinks Marvel's great because they have a club and they give out free stuff. Now, Stan tells him to keep his kindness on the down low and thanks him for writing in and dropping the dough on airmail postage from all the way in Jordan. We wrap up the letters with Jacob in New York, who wants Magneto back. And he claims that people only ever bought X-Men comics because they love Magneto. But uh, he says he won't buy any more X-Men unless Magneto comes back. And what's more, he'll tell his friends not to either. So I tell you, talk about a well-timed missive, and uh, Stan informs Jake that uh, Maggie's back in town. We get a next-ish blurb where Jay Gavin takes over the art altogether, much to the dismay of whoever that was that uh, said his art sucked. So uh, I guess it's going to be a hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more or something for uh, King Kirby. We get no announcements on the letters page here, but there is an ad for fantasy masterpieces, which is Marvel stories from the Golden Age. And uh, I tell you what, for a book in 1966, it always tickles me when they refer to the ages of comics, even back then. Like, like who told them it was the Golden Age? Like, where did that even start? I, I love that kind of that kind of stuff. Uh, we do have our bullpen bulletin, so let's get into that. We're going to start with the How About That department. Uh, brand Ech, Y, and Z are mimicking the mighty Marvel style in their mags. And Stan refers to the competition as panicky pussycats delivering watered-down versions of Marvel Madness. And uh, Stan is going to become quite catty about Brand Ech pretty soon here. The bullpen bulletins is going to be... A real uh, conduit of negativity about the comics industry from Stan And it's it's going to be a lot of fun to cover Stan's going to pull no punches He's not going to name names But uh, it's going to be pretty brutal It's going to be good It's going to be fun uh, To the Did You Know department Do you know why Marvel changed the Avengers lineup? Hmm? Do you know? Do you? Do you want to know? Well, I can tell you It's all about continuity You see with Iron Man, Thor, and Giant Man All starring in their own strips Stan didn't want to have them in two different places at once. Now, I mean, do I even have to ask this question? Okay, I'll ask it. Could you even begin to imagine people giving half a crap about that today? I mean, how great would comics be? Um, now, this is also the same reason why he yanked Ben and Johnny out of Strange Tales, so it wouldn't conflict with what they're doing in Fantastic Four. God bless them. I mean, this is how a shared universe ought to be. I mean, it'll never be this again, but... uh. Boy, how fun was it while it lasted? It, it makes me nostalgic for a time that I, uh, that I wasn't even walking this planet. Let's head to the utter confusion department, where we're going to talk about uh, shifting artists around, or where artists will be remaining. Uh, John Romita will be doing a Hulk story. Adam Austin, uh, a.k.a. Gene Colan, will be sticking around on Iron Man. 
Dick Ayers will be doing a whole lot more inking, and Joe Sinnott will be sticking around on inks on Fantastic Four. The Strictly Personal Department. Now, there's a bit about the Marvel Method and how their artists are actually storytellers, right? We know that the Marvel Method is what the Marvel Method is. And Stan introduces us to Johnny Hayes, Marvel's business manager and all-around swell guy. Into our wrap-up, which is basically another pitch for fantasy masterpieces. Bi-monthly, 12 cents. Would someone please buy this book? Please, please, we're begging. Buy this book. Uh, we get 26 new members to the Merry Marvel Marching Society. Nobody that I recognize and nobody with a name funny enough to mention. And into the mighty Marvel checklist here. Um, we're going to start with Fantastic Four number 48, where I think something important might have happened in this one. Maybe? Huh, I wonder. Uh, Spider-Man number 34 versus Craven the Hunter. And I think this is the issue that Deadpool gumped back in 1997 or so. Uh, Reggie and I did a cosmic treadmill on this episode where uh, it's basically taking Deadpool, pasting him over Spider-Man, like making it as though he was in this story, kind of like with Forrest Gump, like being with John F. Kennedy and stuff like that. In that vein, it was a lot of fun and a really fun story to uh, discuss. I think this was the original. Uh, Avengers number 25 features the Avengers versus the most dangerous villain ever. Okay. Daredevil number 13 features the Plunderer and Kazar. Or Kazar. Thor 125 features uh, Hercules again. Again. Uh, Strange Tales 142. Shield does stuff. Doctor Strange does stuff too. Tales of Suspense 75. Iron Man's in trouble and Cap meets Batroc Zilliper. Tales to Astonish 77. Major Talbot figures out the Hulk's secret identity. And Submariner in the surface world. And you'll never guess who he'll run into. It's Wasp and Giant Man. I guess that's a big deal. Sergeant Fury number 27 gives us the truth behind Nick Fury's eye patch. And finally, Marvel Masterpieces number one has Golden Age goodness, of course. Anybody want to talk Merry Marvel Marching Society? No? Well, we're going to anyway. Um, There's a Merry Marvel Marching Society ad adjacent to the bullpen pages. They're really, really pushing this thing, which is great. You know, it's great that they're trying to uh, build up a community. I... I think I should uh, try to take some uh, take some notes here and see if I can do it myself. Um, now, in it, we get the Hulk and Doctor Doom talking about all the ginchy goodness of the MMMS. And Doom reveals that he's wearing a brand new Hulk sweatshirt, yours for $2.98. Now, we only see the front of it, but they promise a huge surprise on the back. And I could only imagine what... The, oh, okay, okay. I, I know what this one is. I, you probably do as well if you're listening to the show. It's a fairly iconic t-shirt. Or sweatshirt, I suppose. The front of it says, Here comes the Hulk, and it has the Hulk charging toward us. You know, charging toward whoever's looking at it. The back of it has the Hulk's back, and it says, There goes the Hulk. It's it's a fairly iconic shirt. You probably would recognize it if, uh, if you saw it. Uh, also... In addition to this $3 sweatshirt, you can also get your Spidey six-foot pinup for a buck ninety-nine, your superhero stationery set for a dollar, or your X-Men t-shirt for $1.50. And that does it for the issue outside of the ads, which uh, don't change all that often. I think in the next episode we'll be taking a look at a couple of fun ads here, but uh, yeah, they're all the same stuff, you know, build your muscles, do a prank on your neighbor, it's a... Uh... It's nothing really, nothing that nobody else has ever talked about before, but uh, we might find something interesting in the next couple of episodes. 
But before we cut out of here, we do have a few letters of our own to discuss here. Now we're going to start with our friend Billy D talking about X-Men number 14. And uh, he channels his inner Nightcrawler and says, Mingot! These letters pages with uh, some smiley, laughy emojis after it. And yes, these letters pages. <laughs> they are they are a blast. Um, I... You know, it's like I could almost just do a show on these letters pages That might actually be a fun show to do Just go through all, you know, Silver Age comics, Marvel and DC both And just start pulling letters pages and talking about, you know, just the tone and tenor of the day Seeing how fans were reacting to certain things Seeing some arguments in the letters pages That is, that's the part that's like the most shocking to me Is that we've got letter writers arguing with other letter writers And, uh Coming to Stanley's aid or, or putting Stan on the train tracks It's just, it's weird It's a lot of fun uh, Billy continues The Sentinels at this point aren't that great in my opinion So I was glad when they were revived And made giant size later on Anyone that doesn't know how much of a creep Xavier was back then Should really be listening in Really good episode Well, thank you so much for writing in And yes, Xavier will continue To be as creepy as only he can be It's uh, <laughs> definitely gonna continue and, you know, yeah, I agree with you about the Sentinels here I'm um, trying to remember Yes, yes, we actually did this as an issue of Mary X Lapsed around Christmas last year it Was uh, I think it was X-Men number 98 or 97 It was uh, post-Giant Size, of course, and Claremont was there And we had the X-Men in uh, at Rockefeller Center And they were attacked by the Giant Sentinels And I can't remember if that's the first time we saw them as Giant-sized um, Sentinels But... Definitely a lot more fun as as big, huge, giant robots than these, yeah, you know, sort of just very tall robots. It's a little bit uh, less imposing, and also how they they all talk kind of like Brooklyn cabbies rather than you know dead voiced robots is a little less uh, imposing. <laughs> but yes, I definitely agree. They're better, bigger, and good God willing, we'll get there eventually. Uh, next up, we got Damien talking about X Men number two. And he says, this issue really felt thrown together. There seemed to be quite a few little inconsistencies appearing. Professor X is already appearing older than Stan had made him in the first issue when he referenced his parents working on nuclear research. I expect that he had forgotten that detail by the time he came to write this month's dialogue and just went off the art, which always depicted Professor X as older. Of course, the most obvious error is Jean's teleportation. As you say, it shows that nobody should really be their own editor. And you know, that really makes me ask a question here about Xavier and, and actually about, like, the fandom of the early 60s here You figure, what would bring a kid to a comic? Would it be the words or would it be the art? It would probably be the art, at least initially, right? So you come in for the art and you see this man in a wheelchair And he looks older I mean, he looks a fair amount older than the uh, students here uh, I would think of him as being... A man in his 40s? Just by the art, like without any kind of words, dialogue, anything like that I would picture him in his 40s or 50s just by looking at him So I wonder if like kids of the day thought of him as just like Being like twice the age, at least twice the age of the X-Men Which uh, only makes it creepier with issue 3's revelation That he, uh, he's got the hot pants for, for Ms. Grey And yeah, Jean's teleportation I, I had a little bit of fun with that uh, Simply because, I mean, it's, it's fun to have fun with stuff like that Um Damien continues, you were reading this book in black and white, so you missed one of the silliest errors when they talk about that red ice cream van, which is clearly white. The whole ice cream van thing looks ludicrous in hindsight. Clearly, the hated and feared bit was not in the earliest conception of the team. 
Kirby is obviously depicting them in the same way he did the Fantastic Four as celebrities as well as superheroes. It'll be interesting to see when the anti-mutant rhetoric starts. I imagine it has to be there by the Sentinel story, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't think there was any sort of fear and hate implied here. I I know that it was always kind of an underlying thing. Uh, It was actually more that the mutants feared the way they'd be treated rather than the humans fearing the mutants outright. This even goes back to that amazing adult fantasy story that introduced us to... Whatever that guy's name was. I don't remember his name, but it was Amazing Adult Fantasy number 14, which was the first mention of a mutant in uh, Marvel chronology. And in that, you know, he was whisked away by that, uh, by that fella to join that order or whatever it was. And that was due to the mutants themselves fearing that they wouldn't be accepted, rather than humanity having an overt fear and hatred towards them. Professor X basically says as much in the first issue of X-Men here. It's like he doesn't know. If humans are ready to have mutants, you know, walk side by side with them. And the fear and hate part kind of crept in around issue 8. So a little bit before the uh, Sentinel story. uh, And it was uh, quite out of nowhere and quite forced. (laughs) And we talked about that a lot during that issue and uh, continue to. Especially uh, as the fear and hate is inconsistent. You know, sometimes they're loved, sometimes they're hated, sometimes they're told they'll be looked at as heroes, sometimes they're shot at by police. Uh, Maybe when Roy Thomas takes over, things will be a little bit more even keel, especially considering he doesn't have to write and edit like a dozen books a month. So maybe he'll be able to keep things straight, and maybe we'll see a little bit more consistency uh, from that point on. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I'm really enjoying these essential episodes. They're a real palate cleanser between the often dense modern comics. It was a great idea to go right back to the beginning while you await your orders. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for checking these episodes out, Damien. I was hoping that you would, and I was hoping that you'd dig them. And uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to go back to um, in our off time between DCBS orders. Didn't know where to go. I, I talked about this uh, probably in the first episode of The Essentials here, which is now 24 episodes ago, which is pretty wild to me. But I was thinking about doing the Rosenberg run, you know, I was thinking about doing post-giant size, which, I mean, that's kind of the go-to, you know, a lot of a lot of folks leave out the Silver Age stuff. And I think if you want to start an X-Men podcast, it's like, well, where do you start? Oh, with giant size, of course, and I, I figure anybody can do that. <laughs> and, I mean, that's probably the smart play, because more people are going to be interested in those stories than these Silver Age ones, but... You guys know me. I'm a completionist and a fake-ass comics historian, so if we're going to start at the beginning, well, damn it, we're going to start at the beginning. So here we are with the Silver Age, and I mean, look at how far we've come. We're almost a third of the way through the first 66, which, that's pretty cool. We'll be there before we know it, and then we're going to get into some really fun and really weird Bronze Age stuff, the guest appearances of the X-Men, then we'll hop right into Giant Size and uh, hit the ground running, so... Hope you're all looking forward to that. I know I am. I just hope uh, we're able to keep it going that long. So uh, we will see. We'll play it by ear, and uh, we will keep our fingers crossed hoping for the best. But uh, thank you guys so much for writing in. If anybody out there would like to write in and be a part of the show and maybe talk about these silly Silver Age stories or basically any X-Men stuff you'd like to discuss, please, please feel free to do so. You can find me a few different places. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men, 
And you can hear the entire archives and all the Chris and Reggie goodness at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And I think that's going to do it for today. And, uh, wow, we're around 45 minutes, which is at least twice as long as I thought these essential episodes were going to go. So uh, I guess once you get me started, I just uh, refuse to stop. But anyway, I would like to thank you all so, so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.